This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. The suicide rate among Zoomers has increased more than any other age group in the United States. It's part of an alarming report that came out just days after the suicide deaths of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. And mental health is just one area of health care that's both underfunded and underserviced. Hospital wait times are rising as the demand grows. It's a crisis that was the centerpiece of the three main party leaders in the provincial election. I speak to Dominic Pilla about the right prescription for an inefficient system. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. As we celebrate Father's Day, you may want to take Dad for a walk or share a salad for dinner. A new study claims the majority of Canadian men are leading unhealthy lifestyles. New research says 72% have two or more unhealthy habits like poor diet, smoking, drinking, not exercising, or not getting enough sleep. The Canadian Men's Health Foundation is the first in the country to study health behaviours rather than diseases. Only 6% of respondents exhibited no unhealthy behaviours and were classified as very healthy. Police are investigating reports of elder abuse against Stan Lee of Marvel Comics. A restraining order was granted this week against a man who's been acting as the 95-year-old's business manager and personal advisor. Kaya Morgan was arrested and accused of taking advantage of Lee's impaired hearing, vision and judgment and preventing friends and associates from contacting him. Despite the case, Lee, who calls himself the world's oldest Twitter user, continues to post updates on social media. I just want to thank my fans so much for still caring and for writing in and for making my days so joyous. Last Friday was Elder Abuse Awareness Day. 44 turned 94 this week. Happy birthday to former U.S. President George H.W. Bush, who made history by becoming the first former president to reach 94. Gerald Ford died at 93 years and 165 days. Ronald Reagan lived for 93 years and 120 days. Jimmy Carter, born four months after Bush, will turn 94 on October 1st. Sadly, Bush's wife of 73 years, Barbara Bush, died this past April at 92. For the first time, millennials outnumbered seniors in the voting demographic in the recent Ontario election. And in the United States, a similar trend of Gen X, millennials and post-millennials make up the majority of almost 60% of eligible voters. But if history repeats itself, they'll vote in low numbers at the upcoming November midterms. In the 2014 midterm election, this group cast 21 million fewer votes 
than Zoomers aged 54 and up. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Some alarming statistics came out amid the news of the suicide deaths of high-profile celebrities, 55-year-old designer Kate Spade and 61-year-old Anthony Bourdain. In the U.S., suicides are up 30% in just 20 years. While Canada has not seen a similar spike, the numbers haven't decreased either, and Zoomers are at the highest risk. I reached psychiatrist Dr. David Greitzer of CAMH. There does seem to be a contagion effect with suicide, which is a fancy way of saying that one suicide can sometimes inspire another. So we're hoping that this sparks a conversation and more people get help, uh, but we're also very cautious about the larger implications. Do you have any numbers on that contagion effect? It's difficult to measure. Certainly when Robin Williams suicided, there was an uptick in suicides in the United States. We do know that sometimes suicide can inspire other suicide, and so we encourage people to talk about these things, but also to talk about the fact that there is hope. Depression is treatable. There are anti-suicide measures like medications. Uh, Some statistics from the United States characterize suicide as one of the main causes of death. I guess you're referring to the CDC report that had come Mm -hmm. out last week. Uh, Lots of interesting things about this report, including significant rise in suicide south of the 49th parallel. Suicide rates are up 30% since 1999, a trend you don't see in Canada or across the Western world. Uh, But one thing you do see there is uh, white men in particular are completers of suicide. It's the Zoomer demographic, people aged 55 to 64. Why is that? I'm not sure we've got a good answer. Suicide can occur at any age uh, in adult life. But yeah, um, that report had suggested uh, the mid-40s to mid-60s were surprisingly high in completed suicides, about four in every 10. Uh, So one has to wonder. That might be an age when people feel particular stresses. It might be also an age when people are particularly vulnerable to certain types of mental illness. My experience as a clinician is that suicide has many factors. Remember, this isn't a diagnosis, it's an action. Uh, And so certain things may come together. But I do wonder, in the United States but elsewhere, uh, that demographic might be particularly touched by pain and opiate misuse. And as we have changes with the economy, that's a demographic that's likely to feel that more. Somebody who loses his job at, say, 25 is much more hopeful than somebody who loses his job at 65. The numbers put forward by Statistics Canada suggest that there is no rise. ISIS has slightly more recent data from what I've been able to gather. And, you know, here's the good news. Uh, suicide rates in Canada are not rising as they have risen in the United States. But here's something that's not good, despite the fact that more people are talking about mental illness, despite the fact that stigma is fading, despite the fact that more people are taking antidepressants than ever in our history, suicide rates also haven't dropped. There are many people with mental illness who've sought care, who suicide, but there are also people who are probably undiagnosed who suicide, and perhaps there are people who don't have mental illness who, because of social stresses, uh, suicide. So it's a complicated issue, but this much is clear. Many people have mental illness, some are suicidal, and for those people, action is needed. And I want to emphasize that there is hope There are treatments for depression that are highly effective. And I've seen advice 
for friends and for loved ones. And one of the things that actually surprised me said, well, if you have any kind of suspicion, talk to the person, ask them if they have considered taking their own life. I think an honest conversation is a great place to start. You can look for warning signs of mental illness in your loved ones, uh, a change in attitude. They used to love baseball, but they have no interest in the Blue Jays now. Or perhaps even something more subtle like a change in hygiene. And start a conversation. It's worth it because not only is there mental illness in our society, of course, but there are treatments for mental illness. And yet in Canada, like in the United States, like across the Western world, many people fall through the cracks in the system. Patton did a study a few years ago showing for every two people with major depressive disorder in Canada, only one gets care. We would never accept that for diabetes or cancer. It's unacceptable for mental illnesses like depression. We've just had an election and all the parties had platforms that featured more money for mental health. Is that a solution? But we have to be focused and focus on things that work. Evidence-based cares like cognitive behavioral therapy for depression, uh, intervening early in illness and so on. And again, if you do suspect that a friend or a loved one is thinking about suicide, what should you do? This is a medical emergency. You should talk to them. If you feel that it's something very serious, you should seek health care for them. That might be going to their family doctor. That might even be going to the emergency room of your local hospital. Anything else you want to leave us with? I just want to emphasize again that there is hope for those who suffer. Mental health care is so much better than it was even a decade ago. Okay, Dr. David Gracer, thanks so much for that. Well, thank you for having me on your show. That was Toronto psychiatrist Dr. David Gratzer. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, finding a cure for a sick healthcare system. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Medicine was at the heart of the campaigns by the three major parties in the recent provincial election, and hospital wait times are rising as the demand grows. So what can be done to ease the strain on the system? Dominic Pilla has over 30 years' experience in healthcare leadership and is a keynote speaker next week at Moses Neimer's Idea City. We actually have a lot of resources in healthcare, and we have tremendous uh, goodwill among many of the clinicians and the administrators. People are trying their best working really hard and actually trying to innovate within their systems, but the system is actually very inefficient across so many dimensions. And part of it is the adoption of technology. Uh, Part of it is the interdependencies and the poor communication processes between systems. And some of it is just unaligned incentives among each of the silos of healthcare. But a big part of it is with a, a relatively inefficient system facing a very, very large demand and growing demand for services, and the two are are just not intersecting and creating a lot of strain on the system. And ER has become uh, the go-to backup for many, many conditions that, you know, belong in other points of care or other uh, settings. Right now, only about 3% of Canadian prescriptions are done through an e-prescribing platform. Uh, Canada Health Infoway is working hard to have us catch up. So what exactly is e-prescribing and why does it make a difference whether the doctor writes it 
out in longhand on a script as opposed to entering it in a computer? Uh, well, a whole bunch of advantages. One is e-prescribing can use a prescriber technology to help the physician find the right medicine for the condition that he or she has diagnosed. The second thing it does is it gets sent electronically to pharmacy and pharmacy can prepare the prescription ahead of the patient showing up at the doorstep. And pre-fills done electronically with the help of technology are significantly more efficient than the pharmacy workflow and also reduce errors at pharmacy and wait times for pharmacy and allows the pharmacist then to spend more time analyzing the file and looking for drug interaction and does a better job of counseling the patient and the patient has a better health outcome. In our healthcare system, we don't have a healthcare system. We have 12 or 13, depending on how you count them, healthcare systems. And then what we also have, you know, overlaying on top of that is the silos within each of the provinces, the LINs, the drug information practices, the health ministries themselves. And so uh, I believe that part of what's been very difficult in implementing, designing, and adopting technology in healthcare has been that uh, federated model, which obviously fits with our Canadian Federation, but becomes very difficult in healthcare and has created a huge obstacle. We have this whole other layer of bureaucracy called LINS, and uh, we have more deputy ministers. That, that number has mushroomed. Do you see that as a problem? The concept of an integrated health network that looks after the entire community's care is the right idea. Part of the difficulty is technology adoption has been very slow and the business processes are not integrated, so you still have silos even you know, within a LIN area, if you will. So as much as they have the title and of an integrated system, they're in fact not fully integrated. They are in some areas like cancer care, good job, but on primary care, on chronic care management, on complex diseases, there hasn't been as much integration, but I think the concept is the correct concept. All three parties promised a huge increase in the number of long-term care beds. And uh, that's because a lot of people clogging up the hospitals are people who should leave the hospital but have nowhere to go. And they're people who would need long-term care. Yeah, I, I, we would agree with that. And certainly there's a role for long-term care. And I believe it's absolutely right that the wrong place for someone to take certain types of care is in an acute care setting or hospital setting, particularly if the hospital is overcrowded and doesn't necessarily have the tools and expertise to deal with some conditions like long-term wound care or chronic disease management or medication therapy management are all examples that are better in other settings. And long-term care is a better setting than acute care. However, I agree with you and, and, and the experts you've been talking to, the best setting would be the closest to the home as possible and at home if possible. And again, back to technology adoption, remote monitoring, which is great technology and has made great advances is hardly adopted in our country and certainly not prevalent. Infusion in home care, dialysis at home, 100% of dialysis virtually in Canada happens in an acute care setting. And again, if I go south of the border, most of that actually happens at home and is a better point of care, is a lower cost model and results in better outcomes. Home care needs to be developed in this country and, and technology adoption is part of making that work. Our belief is two sort of paramount pieces. One is to be patient-centric and really put the patient at the center of care. And that sounds like, you know, motherhood as a statement, but in fact doesn't happen in our country. If you look at uh, stakeholders, you know, typically other stakeholders are at the center of the discussion, 
and rarely do we put the patient at the center of it, what's best for the patient. You know, it's very difficult to take uh, healthcare in a silo, whether that's your primary care doctor, your specialist, a nurse practitioner, a clinician, a pharmacist, and so on. And typically, people need all of those, uh, particularly in chronic disease management, which is our highest cost driver, and in complex conditions. And so the idea of an integrated care model as close to the community, as close to the home as possible, is what we believe. I would say my last point is to align incentives. You know, what incentives are there for patients to look after themselves, all the way to what incentives are there for clinicians to be paid for uh, when patients are healthy, as opposed to be paid for when they perform a clinical act. And there are examples of very good systems that have done that, and, and we're seeing good evidence of that resulting in a more efficient system uh, that costs less, but actually result in better health outcomes. And do you have any hope that we will get there? I do. There's great examples of that. I, I use the example of cancer care. I think cancer care has done a really good job of integrating care and can be pointed to as an example of where we need to take other components. We are seeing, you know, uh, more funding for Canada Health InfoWay. They're now rapidly trying to scale up e-prescribing. Uh, we're seeing great adoption of electronic medical records by physicians. The, the real question, Libby, is, you know, can we get there fast enough? Because I believe we are in crisis, and so we should be moving faster. Uh, but there is. There are some great examples of the things that I've talked about. Okay. Dominic Pilla, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Dominic Pilla, Chief Executive Officer of McKesson Canada. He's speaking about inefficient health care next Thursday at Idea City. For more information and tickets, go online to ideacity.ca. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, he writes the songs that make the whole world sing, and he turns 75 today. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. The Acropolis in Greece hosts comedic actor Bill Murray doing a one-nighter with cellist Jan Vogler at the Athens and Epidaurus Festival. The performance is set for June 19th. Now on display at the Victoria and Albert in London, personal belongings and artifacts from iconic artist Frida Kahlo, which have never been seen outside of Mexico. In Warsaw, Poland, the country that's been synonymous with vodka has opened its first museum devoted to the national beverage. And the Natural History Museum of L.A. County has reopened its permanent exhibition, Becoming Los Angeles, which explores the rich history of the city and the diverse groups of people who have and still call L.A. their home. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Book. He writes the song that make the whole world sing. Barry Manilow turns 75 today. His first big break came in the 60s when he worked as a commercial jingle writer, including this catchy one for Band-Aid. I am stuck on Band-Aid, friend, because Band-Aid's stuck on me. In the early 70s, Barry Manilow worked with Bette Midler as her pianist, musical arranger, and producer of her first two solo albums. A few years later, he released his first solo album that featured the hit, Could It Be Magic? He followed up with another album that featured the blockbuster, Mandy. 
his first song to reach number one on the charts. And he never looked back. The megastar was writing and recording hit after hit. Right now, one of Manilow's signature songs, Copacabana. Her name was Lola. That was Barry Manilow with Copacabana. The singer-songwriter turns 75 today. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.